I'm not the only, Paul is not the only person who's noticed that there's quite a high proportion of Andrews uh, involved in uh, this discussion today. And other people also commented on what extremely enjoyable uh, periods of discussion we've had over the last year and a bit. And I don't know there's any statistical connection between a high proportion of Andrews and a thoroughly successful discussion group, but I suspect there is some. Okay, I'm going to talk about the identification of bubbles uh, and stabilization of the system, as, of course, it's no point in having a system for stabilizing if it isn't possible to achieve. So the first question is, can we identify bubbles and stabilize the system? I think it's quite clear to everybody what we're trying to do. We simply want to avoid what's just happened. I don't mean we want to avoid the last crisis, because the next crisis may be significantly different in its causes and developments than the last one. But we want to avoid the sort of instabilities which have caused so much pain and are still causing so much pain today. And I will aim to show that we must focus, if we're going to do this, not just on the prices of goods and services, but on the prices of assets, and Sushil has already early indicated some of the reasons for that. Now, I think we've got to a point in which some assumptions, which are widely held in the past, are seldom heard today, and these, unfortunately, are still occasionally heard today, particularly among those who do not, in my view, have an adult approach to the past mistakes, i.e., it couldn't be our fault, therefore it can't have been the central banks, is one aspect of that which I strongly disagree with. The great moderation, if you like, theory included that it was possible for central banks to maintain low and stable consumer price inflation through changes in interest rates. And that macroeconomic and financial stability would follow from that. It followed, if that was the case, that asset prices should not be a concern of central bankers. Now, there were theories behind these assumptions, and the key one, which Paul has talked about already a bit, was the apparent belief in the efficient market hypothesis. And I'm going to just divert slightly to considering this, because I think it is so central. It is amazing that the efficient market hypothesis has been taken so seriously by so many for so long. The reason why it's amazing is that it's such appalling epistemology. The common cry has been that somehow people's maths have been bad. Bad maths is often attributed as a cause of the problem. I don't think that's the case at all. It's not bad maths. It's a bad understanding of how science works. And the example the efficient market hypothesis gives is excellent. In its original formulation, this hypothesis assumed that there was a random walk with drift to equity market returns and other market returns. And it was quite common to find people writing books like a random walk down Wall Street or something like that. However, this was a testable hypothesis. 
and it proved to be wrong. It was not robust under testing. Tests showed that markets, in fact, had variance compression and they had negative serial correlation of return. <coughs> and there were two choices then. You either scrapped the efficient market hypothesis and put something in its place, and these, things, these tests were developed and shown that that was not robust in the early 60s. It's a long time ago. It didn't happen. Nobody produced a new version of the efficient market hypothesis was testable. It therefore fell the wrong side of Karl Popper's famous demarcation between science and non-science. The efficient market hypothesis is, is, I think, a disgrace because it is a failure of the whole of the economics profession to be heard if you disagreed with it or to continue with it if you did, did agree with it without taking into account the basis that you're trying to establish, which is a testable work, which is scientifically therefore valid. Having diverted, I will now try and move faster onto the other things. The other intellectual error uh, was efficient. It was easy cleanup, that if you had asset prices collapsing, it didn't matter very much. You could seal, deal with the aftermarket very easily. And although these assumptions were disputed by some of us, uh, happily including myself, or I probably wouldn't be here long before the events that took place. They were not fully accepted, and perhaps still aren't, but they were very largely accepted now, and as always in life, it is events rather than arguments which tend to be very convincing. Okay, we've now got an emerging consensus, and it's one which I support. Firstly, that consumer price stability is not enough, but it does remain vital. And we must take steps to mitigate, if we can, the risks of major recessions. Now, it's quite clear that these often follow asset bubbles. People who dispute this seem to me to be very odd. Uh, we don't have just the evidence of the problems which came from the asset bubble of 2000 and the asset bubble of 2007 in the U.S., We've had the 1989 asset bubble in America where I may point out to you that the collapse of share prices preceded by two years any reduction in land prices and was almost instantaneous with the collapse of the economy. Back again to 1929 when it was an equity market bubble, not a housing bubble, uh, which went with the problem. If we are going, therefore, to prevent in future, or at least mitigate the severity, we must address this issue of excess debt and asset bubbles, and we need, therefore, a new policy framework, and that, of course, is what Andrew Large is going to talk about later. Now, there are many ways which we could contribute to this, and I'm not going to deal with them, really. We've got higher equity ratios escalating the size, which could help reduce the too-big-to-fail problem, Tax reform, which I think is extremely important. I think few things are quite as idiotic as subsidizing debt through the tax system. Legal reform, but mainly here, macroeconomic policy. And given the time, I'm going to concentrate purely on that. Dampening asset bubbles and credit bubbles must be a major concern of macroeconomic management. We need, therefore, to have danger signals which we can recognize. And to do that, we will need to monitor asset prices and debt. Why do asset prices matter? 
They have a, a loop with the economy. They make borrowing easier, and they are therefore both the result and the cause of rising debt. But secondly, they are a key transmission process between central bank changes of interest rates and the impact on the real economy. And that transmission mechanism breaks down when we get bubble collapses. Now, the root of asset prices affecting the economy is varied. Uh, I can't go through them all. Keynes' comments about uh, the enthusiasms of entrepreneurs being clear and going together, no doubt. But a route that I'm going to show is of our savings. And I'm also going to show that this is a transmission mechanism for monetary policy, which it breaks down. Here is an example of the stock market having a direct impact on demand. There is a high correlation between U.S. levels of the stock market and the U.S. levels of pension savings. I may, in parentheses, point out that U.S. pension savings have never been as low in history as they are today. You get, if you call discretionary savings, household savings net of pension savings, you'll find there is also a very strong correlation between discretionary savings and real estate, and the two there are now pretty much in line. Now, I can't go into this one in any great detail, but I did write a book uh, the other day uh, called Wall Street Revalued, uh, The Ineptitude of Central Bankers. And in the appendix of that, James Mitchell did a mathematical demonstration of how interest rates change asset prices, but the impact that they have is ephemeral. It doesn't last. If you induce interest rates, you have a tendency to drive up share prices, but they will revert again to fair value. And the demonstration showed uh, that there's a high probability, uh, right at the top of the chart, uh, in, in statistical terms, I think nearly 100% probability, that within a period of naught to a year or three months to a year, interest rate reductions impact on share prices. But after you've gone there for a length of time, the probability of any impact is nugatory. Another very important aspect, though, is that if you can put in its place, if you can measure asset prices, you have to, they have to be testable. And I certainly can't go in the time available uh, on the testability of uh, equity prices. I can assure you, however, that uh, Stephen Wright and I, who developed these berths and the tests for it, have shown that both Q and the cyclically adjusted P multiple are testable measures of equity prices. And having found two, we'd automatically found another one, which is if you find two valid measures of something, they must agree. And this chart shows how close the correlation is between these two measures of the equity value of the US stock market. I also show by sight, and I show you it also works mathematically, that these are mean reverting series, which is another key important test. House prices are more tricky. Uh, I, they haven't, I think, on the whole, been a driving force behind crisis, but they may be in the future. Uh, taking data that Bob Schiller's developed from 1900 and the Feenstein data, which goes back, I think, even earlier for the UK, you can see basically that house prices for most times pretty much flat in real terms, 
And it was really only in the post-2000 period that we had serious divergence from those long-term trends. Again, very quickly, I'm afraid, I think there is a third asset price which really matters, not only shares and houses, both of which have a direct impact on the savings ratio, but there is also the degree to which the market is prepared to take risk in credit and fixed interest assets. And here the Bank of England has developed, I think, through with Lewis, Cherm, Lewis uh, Weber and uh, Rohan Cherm have developed a very interesting model which can measure what they call the implied return from illiquidity, which is basically what people expect to be paid not for taking credit risk or maturity risk, but for simply being prepared to hold one asset which is slightly less liquid than another. And you will see that in the period up to 19... Uh, of 19, uh, up to 2000, this was extremely low. People paid very little. It was the heyday, I may say, of LTCM, which was really trying to make money out of the uh, illiquidity price. Uh, and then it went up, of course, and then it came right down again, and then, woof, it's gone up like a bullet. So I am an obedient person, and I'm looking forward to being the only person so far who has kept within his... 15-minute requirement, uh, and I apologise if the result has been that what I've said is a little over-compressed. However, uh, a fuller explanation is available in the book. And I will say that in my conclusions are that we are very lucky because we've got an emerging consensus, which I think is fundamentally correct. Uh, inflation, like patriotism, is not enough. And we must also, therefore, seek to mitigate asset and credit bubbles, which are themselves, of course, connected. And this should be possible because we can observe them. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. Andrew, would you like to take the podium? Well, I'd like to add my thanks, too, to Paul and Richard for uh, having laid on this um, feast of uh, discussion over the last year. Um, I suppose I've been knocking around for a while, and I have to say I find it one of the most stimulating sets of discussions uh, for many a long year, and it's been a, a great privilege and excitement, actually, to be able to pull things apart, um, step back, and try to think through what really matters. Um, I'd secondly like to uh, just uh, thank Alistair Clark, uh, who um, he and I worked together as colleagues and, uh, in various guises, and he made a major contribution to the chapter in the book that uh, um, you will have seen. Um, now, the third thing is to thank Andrew Smithers. I, I, I'm allowed to thank another Andrew, I think, um, because he's paved the way for uh, what I have to say. And, uh, of course, being in the after-lunch slot uh, is always tough, but maybe it helps if you have a slightly different angle. So um, you may hear a slightly different emphasis uh, in this area than you heard from Sushil and, and Howard uh, before lunch. Uh, so um, if I could just move on... Um, what I'd like to do is to start by making four propositions um, 
that uh, are all for debate. I have to say this whole area is for debate and for, um, and for um, lively discussion because there really are no blacks and whites in the area. And just to avoid confusion and make it quite clear, I'm not going to be talking about supervision as such. I'm certainly not going to be talking about architecture or, or, or how um, different aspects of regulation should fit together with or without central banks. The first proposition um, I, I'd like to make uh, is that there has been a very significant policy gap. Uh, uh, there was a historic presumption, I think, that central banks sort of dealt with systemic issues. Um, but over the last uh, 20 years, that assumption got uh, put on one side, partly, I may say, because other areas of policy were accorded um, fairly definitive frameworks within which to operate, whereas in the case of uh, uh, systemic and uh, macroprudential issues, um, these were not articulated. Uh, they were left unclear. They were put in the too difficult box. And um, it's having, when I was at the Bank of England, it was all too apparent that this was actually the case at that time. Uh, it, it just is a tragedy that um, we had to have a good crisis before the matter um, is uh, now being uh, looked at carefully. The second uh, proposition I would make uh, is that regulation won't do it. Um, yes, there are all this plethora of initiatives uh, with which uh, many of us are familiar. Um, there's debate about many of them as to how effective they're going to be. But there isn't a nerve center of authority that really focuses on the systemic uh, aspects of all of these uh, micro-initiatives and um, uh, there is no joining up process uh, as to what they all mean uh, and how effective collectively uh, they may uh, prove to be. Third proposition uh, is that, of course, yes, it's a global issue, and you can worry about leakage, you can worry about arbitrage. Um, these are real issues. But you have to start somewhere if you're going to deliver um, uh, in, t in this area, and you have to start where the, uh, where the fiscal authority resides uh, and where the legal framework is such that measures can be taken that are regarded as legitimate. Um, so um, I'll come back to where the global dimension fits in just towards the end of my remarks, but um, this is effectively about how national jurisdictions can, uh, can handle these issues. And the last proposition is that whether um, jurisdictions did or did not suffer in this uh, last crisis, clearly the UK did, the US did, much of Europe did, uh, Australia, Canada, China, uh, Malaysia didn't. Uh, nonetheless, uh, the issues remain the same for everybody. And what is today's problem uh, uh, with, within one jurisdiction could well turn into tomorrow's problem in another. And therefore, I think the lessons um, can be learned both from those who failed um, and from those who succeeded. Well, Adair this morning devoted quite a bit of time to the question of what gives rise to this. And I, I'm not going to go back over that ground, but I am just going to emphasize one aspect of 
the root cause of uh, systemic uh, uh, problems and of, 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 of crises. And that, quite simply, is that um, they arise when uh, leverage, in the broad sense, uh, uh, borrowing and debt, uh, get to an area where a perhaps random spark can cause confidence uh, in the system to collapse and bring about the, the cycle which gives rise to uh, crises um, that we are familiar with. And, of course, there are also many indicators of this. Uh, Andrew has very aptly drawn attention to them in, in terms of asset prices, credit spreads, uh, maturity mismatches where people's risk appetites have been compromised, uh, and in other, many other fields um, as well. So if the root cause uh, can be thought, thought of as lying with um, leverage uh, being too high, um, you then can perhaps think about, well, who creates that leverage? How is it created? Because if you are able to draw some conclusions about that, then you can perhaps draw some conclusions about what you might try to do about it. Um, and uh, we're all familiar with the major creators of leverage, the banking system generally, whether banks or quasi-banks, I'm not going to get to the definition, um, the insurance uh, world, uh, to a more limited extent, but um, uh, the insurance world provides guarantees to banks, which are effectively, um, therefore, um, contributing to the build-up of leverage. And, of course, as we've heard in other presentations, embedded leverage uh, within, uh, pro within products uh, of one sort or another. There are, of course, the users of uh, that credit. And... Um, but I, but I think that the, 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 the issue that seems to me to be very important is that um, if we're going to act in relation to the root cause, then we have to act in relation to the creators of credit. Um, you, you've got to do something about the supply. Uh, of course, you can, you, can, uh, you can put restrictions on users too, and that may be important in certain angles, but um, it's, above all, it's the tap that, uh, that needs to be fixed. Well, if those uh, points um, are, are, are on the table, the question then is, um, you need to have a framework to do something about it. Um, how are you actually going to deliver a response to uh, your, uh, your, your, uh, your analysis? And I've listed here um, six different um, issues that seem to me to be very important when thinking about the framework that you need, and I will just talk briefly um, on, on each, each one of, of these. The first is the question of mandate and objectives. It does seem to me to be important, as with um, all policy areas, that there is clarity of mandate um, and clarity of objective as to what it is we're seeking to do. Uh, this, of course, has been sadly one of the things that's been so sadly neglected. It's been neglected in law and it's been neglected in practice. And if the objective would be to secure and maintain financial stability, then it seems to me there are a, a number of different um, aspects that need to be uh, covered in the mandate. Clearly, you have to be able to review uh, and, uh, and assess the the uh, ongoing systemic situation. How close are you to the danger point, in other words? Um, you've got to be able to identify um, 
uh, threats uh, that uh, may be on the horizon that could come as sparks to uh, cause a conflagration, you've, you've, you've absolutely got to be able to come up with a policy response. Uh, and that needs policy instruments uh, on the one hand and an ability to deliver them uh, on the other. The second thing you need, apart from the mandate, is authority. Um, There has to be an overarching oversight, uh, and that in itself is not to be taken for granted, because to oversee something, you absolutely require information in order to be able to achieve it. And then you have to have um, authority in relation to your, your policy response. This, of course, gets into very tricky territory, which um, um, uh, many have pointed out, including in our conversations today, as to where you would draw the line um, as to what authority you would give to the body um, that would be tasked with the the delivery of, of policy. Because you could argue that since... Many, many areas of policy have a systemic overlay. I mean, obviously, all the regulatory areas, uh, consumer protection areas too, as we found in the United States, Um, uh, the fiscal fiscal policy, competition policy, all of them have a systemic overlay. Where do you actually draw the line as to what would be be the task and mandate of the uh, parties responsible? The question of data and indicators is um, important. Um, there's a long list here, really just to, uh, just to indicate that this is a hugely complicated and difficult task. Uh, there are a, a very large number of different areas of information that are going to be of value to those who are thinking about what to do uh, to handle um, systemic problems. And um, not only is there a, a very wide reach uh, of them, but there are also um, multiple sources of the, of the, from which that data is going to need to come. Um, you have macro sources, which, of course, those involved in monetary policy are quite familiar with. You have micro sources. You're going to need a lot of information from uh, uh, supervisory authorities, uh, etc. Um, and you need market intelligence. You, you absolutely need to have a feel for actually what's going on in people's minds um, as to what they're really thinking about the cushion that they see between where things are and where disaster might, might occur. Um, and above all, um, this data, which is so huge and wide and expanse, is going to have to be relevant. And the big trick that w- will, will arise is in boiling down the data such that that which is used for assessment purposes is indeed uh, um, uh, relevant. And uh, I should have perhaps added here that Very, very importantly, uh, in this question of assessment, will come transparency uh, of the the assessment process. In other words, it it will be very important that people understand, not just the the policymakers, but the public, the politicians and others, need to understand what lies behind the assessment that is being made uh, in relation to, uh, to the mandate. Uh, So then the question comes, well, if you're going to have an area of policy which people may well not like um, because it would be bound to want to take action uh, just when people were indeed enjoying uh, the party, and that, of course, upsets politicians because their growth story gets uh, uh, interfered with, 
Uh, it upsets uh, the intermediaries because their profits get uh, um, interfered with and perhaps their bonuses too. Um, and it also upsets the users of credit because they also uh, uh, often enjoy parties. So in order for this to work, there will need to be both legitimacy with a small L, I've, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming there would be legitimacy with a big L, but legitimacy generally and respect accorded to it. Um, and um, you, you'll, you'll find also that what this also says is that this is going to require, in order to get this legitimacy and respect, um, significant uh, uh, input from central bankers, regulators, practitioners, um, and academics. You've got a, you've got a, a, a wide range of parties uh, involved. Then the question comes of what sort of vehicle do you need? Here, of course, there's room for a lot of debate, uh, and it will vary, I'm sure, from country to country. Uh, there are those, I think I probably amongst them, who would favour having a dedicated um, committee process, uh, adequately resourced, that would be able and tasked to make these assessments. Um, there are others who might prefer uh, that it would be carried out by an existing body or perhaps even a new body, though I think that if the, the creation of, of new bodies is something you want to be very, very careful about um, in, in terms of their, their effectiveness. But I think above all, um, the, the takeaway that's important here is that it, it, it is important, it seems to me, that this uh, capability would be anchored um, at the central bank. I, I'm not saying it should be the central bank any more than technically the Monetary Policy Committee is the central bank. But it should be anchored there and resourced there for um, a whole variety of reasons that I've outlined in the slide and, uh, and, and, and won't repeat. I think you're probably familiar with them. The question of instruments comes up. Now, I haven't got time to go into this uh, in detail, but um, the debate here is, is very, very difficult. There are many, many instruments that could be used that would have an, an impact on the systemic uh, uh, situation. And the question is, should there be a single instrument which is, so to speak, owned by the policymakers that they would have the direct authority to deploy? And then if that is the case, what about all the other instruments that could come into play? Should these policymakers be in a position to require other policymakers to do things for systemic reasons that they might not have done within their existing mandates? This is very tricky stuff with uh, governance issues, accountability issues, etc., which we can debate. And you can think perhaps of a sort of spectrum of where different policy instruments um, actually lie. My, my, my own candidate uh, for what might be the owned policy instrument uh, of, the, of this uh, body or, 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 or committee, whatever it might be, uh, is uh, the capital ratios. Um, the reason for that is that um, this seems to me to get closest to the question of the root cause. In other words, it really gets at the supply of uh, leverage, uh, of, of credit and leverage into the economy. Uh, int interest rates, of course, can also be very important, but um, they work on both sides of the balance sheet as opposed to directly getting to the cost of intermediation. And, uh, and therefore, that would at any rate be my my preferred approach, but uh, there may well be other views um, as far as that's concerned. And there are all kinds of tricky issues as far as calibration is concerned. 
you know, if you're going to use an instrument, what impact is a given move in that instrument going to have? We had these problems earlier with monetary policy, and we've learned a lot over the, the years as, uh, since we've had a formalized monetary policy system. We're we going to need to learn a lot, it seems to me, as well, uh, in this systemic uh, area as well. So there are clearly um, a, a number of very tough issues to debate. Um, feasibility of doing it, I, I'm persuaded, yes. Uh, as uh, uh, Mervyn King uh, I mentioned the other day, it's all untested and untried, but that doesn't mean to say it shouldn't be tested and tried. Um, it, the question of legitimacy, I think that we, we know enough about how you can create legitimacy for an area of policy. And as to cost and growth, which has been raised uh, earlier in our conversations, uh, all I could say is that the cost of, of busts um, is incredibly high. So it seems to me there's quite a bit of headroom, even if growth during what would be an upturn, uh, uh, perhaps a more modest upturn, would be slightly lower, then you could avoid the falling off the precipice, which is what we've had to endure um, as a result of, of the crisis. The, the whole relationship with monetary policy is a very tricky one. Um, my own thoughts are that there are different drivers uh, for um, systemic policy than there are for price stability, um, and that if you try and push the two together, actually you could end up with suboptimality on both sides. Uh, I, I can absolutely see that um, there could be a time when we really know enough about it that you could bring them all together. But it's not just the policymakers who don't know um, uh, uh, how to do all of this until they've tried, and nor does the public understand it, nor do the politicians understand it. And it seems to me to be important that we have a real focus on an area of policy which badly needs to be understood, particularly, as I said, because it won't always be very popular. Um, the, the, there are two. Um, is, the, the other issue, which um, I just revert to lastly, is the question of where this fits uh, in, in a global world. Um, we must remind ourselves that it is only at the national level that there is a fiscal support, which is, of course, vital to have in the background of any systemic policy, and where the voters reside. So, what does that leave, uh, in, or, 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 or what does that suggest uh, as far as the um, as the global dimension is concerned. I, I think it helps to perhaps think of three areas um, that, can be, um, that, can be, uh, that can be developed. Let the minister in. Good afternoon, Minister. Um, there are three areas that, could be, uh, that can be developed and I think are important. The first one is that the global community could actually assist to put pressure on individual jurisdictions to create frameworks of this nature. Um, if, the, if, 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 if these are not fairly generally put into place, then of course the argument of leakage and, and arbitrage gets all the stronger. But if they are, then that can itself um, help to strengthen the, the entire framework. The second is that, of course, at the global side, the, in, the, in the global sense, standards in relation to the um, various micro uh, policy areas uh, and instruments is obviously important. It's important that, there are, that the outputs that these are seeking to achieve are widely understood and are calibrated in similar manner. 
And thirdly, of course, there's the whole question of data flow and coordination of policy. If different countries are at different places and taking somewhat different views, it's clearly very important that there should be some form of either bilateral or clearinghouse in order to, uh, in order to accommodate that. Um, I couldn't resist putting uh, this uh, uh, by way of uh, example for the UK because it's in the, uh, the, the, the paper that I wrote. Uh, the particular issues, we've covered many of them, but I don't intend to go over them in detail here. You could debate all of them, of course. But um, what you will notice uh, in this uh, approach is that it has or does borrow quite, quite a lot from what I think overall has been quite a successful approach to monetary policy, which I see as sitting alongside uh, uh, the framework that uh, would be put uh, into place. So, um, in conclusion, and uh, I'm sorry, Andrew, I did overshoot a few minutes. Um, it may be tough. Um, it may be that a framework of this sort would develop, uh, would create, uh, would produce unwelcome medicine, but I really uh, do think that we... We owe it not just to ourselves but to future generations to try it because I think, as many people have suggested, the next crisis could be a lot worse. Thank you.